Well, hello again, everyone. I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News, where we try to bring the gospel to bear on every aspect of our lives and our ministries today. It's gospel thinking for today. That's our motto, Philip, isn't it? Yeah, it's the one we're working on at the moment. Yes, I suspect we'll keep working on that. I hope so. And today we're particularly going to be talking about how the gospel and a gospel way of thinking relates to the subject of religious wars, which is probably not the subject you thought you were going to hear when you turned on for your episode this week. But we'll tell you why that's important in just a couple of minutes. But first, I just want to pick up on a couple of comments and questions that have come in just in the last little while on the email, especially in relation to the gullibility and cynicism episode we did a couple of weeks ago. Good. Uh, Carl wrote in, Carl Matai wrote in with a really interesting comment that I'm not sure is a question so much as a comment, but it was interesting and I just wanted to share it. Uh, He said, in my own thinking, the difference between the rationalistic modernism of the past 150 years and the postmodernism of the past 30 years is the difference between we and me. I think Enlightenment modernism said that we humans can find the truth empirically and we humans banded together to do it without God. But in the last 30 years of postmodernism, we've lost confidence in all the other humans who might have been engaged in this task with us. And we now believe that only I, only me, that I'm the only one who can really find the truth because I can't really trust all these other people because of their agendas and bias and power growing. That's an interesting perspective, isn't it? It is interesting. Yes, good on you, Carl. Thanks for that. Um, I've been interested too that one of the ways in which we avoid causing uh, angst to people who are transgender is by calling individuals they. That's a strange thing to do, isn't it? We haven't got another singular version, so we've gone to a plural somehow. No, we, I know we contain multitudes, but that Well, there's a boys' a school, weird, I know, where all the reports, they do not say he did this, he did that, or he is not used. They. At so, a boys' school? At a boy, all boys, but the reports are all written in the plural they which I think is not really helpful to the boys in learning grammar. Possibly not. <laughs> but Carl's point about um, the shift from a, a sense that we can do this, we have the technology and we have the rationality to make progress. To then, my truth is the truth. Yeah. yeah. It is, it's a nice little summary of what's happening. Yeah. There's another interesting question here from Lachlan, from Lachlan Sheed. He's written in, first of all, to say... Uh, Thank you. Um, And to notice that the dominant strategy that he keeps noticing is that people selectively apply either Enlightenment or postmodern thinking depending on their convenience, depending on the cultural zeitgeist they're in. Lachlan, you're absolutely right in that. There are very few people who actually are philosophically consistent or coherent. In my objection to God, I will grab whatever argument suits, even if it comes from different philosophical thoughts. And uh, yes, people are eclectically contradictory. So at one level, at one moment, we, we say we must trust the science as if there is an objective scientific empirical truth. And we draw that to our side for our arguments. And the next moment we're saying there's nothing objectively true. There's nothing we can trust. It's all politics. It's all... That's just your science. (laughs) Exactly. Not my science. (laughs) Your facts, my facts. Lachlan then goes on with an interesting question, though, about reason, really, about reason and rationality. He says, I'm left with questions about the right relationship between scepticism and reason or rationality in the Christian life. For instance, the Enlightenment's idea or premise that we can seek out truth without reference to God is empty. 
But there are degrees of granularity with which Christians can seek out truth in the Bible by appealing to our reason, to our rationality, with God in the picture. And on the other end of the scale, the extreme of scepticism could result in rejecting many valuable resources available to us throughout history. So he has a question about how Christians can rightly use reason as we think about things with God in the picture, and also how we can be rightly sceptical without being too sceptical. Any thoughts? Yes, he's put his finger on a very important truth. You see, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although not, not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before our ages for our glory. Now, there is a sense in which, given the rejection of God, given the lie of the Garden of Eden, all other philosophies' ideas have a corruption running in them. But once you come back to God's way of viewing the world, the ideas and reasoning that we have have been washed, sanctified out of that corruption, that fundamental corruption. But it's not that we are unreasoning creatures. It's just that you have to have the fundamental wisdom of God to start with to be able to use your reason. So you go through the book of Acts when Paul is in the synagogue in uh, Acts 17 in Thessalonica or in uh, Acts 18 in Corinth or Acts 19 in Ephesus. He reasons with them. He argues with them. Reasoning is part of God's good gift to humanity. And so it's right that we use reason, but we need to have a scepticism about godless reasoning. And therefore, to some extent, a scepticism about each other because your reasoning, my reasoning, we may seek to find out what God is saying there and argue and persuade and reason our way towards the the sense of what's happening, but we will get it wrong, either because just we're fallible or because we've got our own twisted reasons for reaching that conclusion. Yes, we certainly. Well, while we now have the wisdom of God because we understand the cross, we understand God and his mercy, we understand the creator, we understand judgment. While we have these fundamental pieces in place, which the Enlightenment humanist atheist doesn't, we still don't reason perfectly. We still are contaminated by sinfulness in our reasoning. And so it's not as if Christians will give all, have all the answers. We need to be sceptical about ourselves. You mentioned Acts, a bit like the noble Bereans. Yes, they searched to see if these things were true, but they had to search, they had to think, they had to reason. And... I must be sceptical about my own thinking, otherwise I'll never change my mind from from bad to good, which is part of what Paul encourages in the repentance in 2 Corinthians 7, that it's, it's a good thing to change your mind for the better. Indeed it is. And thanks for that question, Lachlan, very helpful. Uh, moving on to today's main topic, Philip, you want to talk about religious wars. Why is this... A topic to talk about. Why might we be interested in this? Well, one reason there's just time. I was in a bookshop the other day, a paper shop the other day, and I saw this magazine, which was I don't know, a couple of hundred pages long magazine on holy wars. And being on holidays, I bought it and read it, and it got me thinking about religious war. But the main reason is that when I read comments in newspapers over and over again on the articles that are religious, which are very often 
newspaper articles I'll turn to, the comment sections, you'll always get people writing in saying, we've got to get rid of religion. Religion causes wars. The reason why you know, we don't want to have religion is religion causes wars. And there's just this, what do you call it, a meme, a trope, this kind of argument that comes in, this little throwaway line that solves every kind of issue. Religion causes wars, therefore get rid of religion. It's certainly been a very common accusation against Christianity in the last several decades. I've heard it numerous times. I think of Christopher Hitchens and his book, uh, God is Not Great, Religion Poisons Everything. And it's this kind of idea that has grown, I think, in recent decades. It's not just that religion is outdated, that it's primitive, that we've moved past it. It's a a source of harm and hate. Mm. And in particular, it stirs up passions and resentments and it causes fights and wars. And another reason why we must get rid of religion is it just causes conflict. And in particular... It causes wars. And so it's. And wars are bad. Yes. No one wants war. I mean, the, the person who wants war is an idiot, is an immoral person. War is a dreadful thing and does dreadful things to people. I mean, look at the, the images and the stories we have of the Ukraine and the horrors that are taking place there. But the horrors that are taking place there are taking place in a dozen other countries at the same time which don't have the same access to media, our media. And there's nothing you want to say that's that's good about the war. So if religion is the cause of war, religion is a bad thing. But it's just a throwaway line that gets repeated and repeated. And the problem with a repeated line like that is it, it, it's, it's the very nature of propaganda. If you repeat it often enough and long enough in an unchallenged fashion, people start believing it. And Christians become somewhat browbeaten by it. It's it's yes. yet another example of the world and the society uh, alienating, marginalising and criticising us. And so we feel down about it. It's another thing that's against our ledger. We cause wars, apparently. Yes. And we're not sure how to answer it. We're not sure how to talk to our friends sure. when they think about these things. And we put ourselves in the category called religion. And very often the religion they're talking about is Christianity, but we put ourselves... So when they're saying religion causes wars, that means we Christians are causing wars. But Christians, well, what is religion and what is Christianity and are they... Can you... and, and what is war? So we need to <laughs> yes. kind of sort these things out. When we say religion causes wars, and we want to try and equip you today through today's episode how to think about this kind of accusation and in a kind of Christian apologetic sense, how not only to defend and answer the accusation, but to say something positive about the gospel. Uh, the starting point is to understand the accusation. So there's three things here. There's wars. What do we mean when we say wars? What do we mean when we say religion? And are those things connected? So let's start with the concept of war and how we think about war and the Bible and what it says about war. Um, this is an interesting one for you, Philip, because you were a pacifist at one point, weren't you? Yes, yes, for many years. I think I was, became a Christian when I was about 13, and uh, I was a pacifist till I was 20, yeah. And what did you discover that changed that, and, and how does that relate to how we understand what war is and the nature of war in the Bible? Well, I got bashed up a few times in my teenage years, and, <laughs> and I didn't retaliate. Mm -hmm. uh, I lived out my pacifism which was interesting experiences, but I won't tell you now about those. But it was hanging on a thread of Bible verses like turn the other cheek, which most likely were the right things for me to be doing in some of the conflicts that I was in as a teenage boy. But it was 
a failure to understand what turn the other cheek meant in the context of the Sermon on the Mount where it occurs. And it was of ignorance of the other parts of the Bible, like Ecclesiastes, where it says there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. And it was a failure to take seriously the warfare that is seen in the scriptures and how God uses warfare. And when I was confronted with a situation where I had to look at the Bible, my pastor was very helpful. He lent me a couple of books. Lent me the book of Martin Lloyd-Jones and the Sermon on the Mount, which I, I found fascinating because it was not only on that verse, but it opened up to me the Sermon on the Mount. It was a very valuable time. And I came to understand that I was wrong. And so I changed my mind. And how did that change your, your view of war and how you think Christianly about what a war is, what war is, what causes wars? Well, it didn't at the point of violence. The, the scriptures do speak, the Psalms speak, that a man of violence is not a man of God. And so my hatred of violence as a solution to problems is still valid. But I remember being a... a a youth leader and taking a fellowship group out for a, an event and at the end of the evening the fellowship group were picked on on a railway station um, by a bunch of yahoos and suddenly I was responsible for these young people's safety and it wasn't a matter of turning my other cheek it was a matter of defending them and in the end uh, some neighbours, some not neighbours, some passerbyers called the police, and the police came and sorted out these young fellows and solved the problem. And I realised social interactions, the use of police, the use of force, is a right and proper thing at certain times. And so the change in my Bible understanding didn't change my hatred of violence, but certainly did change in my sense of social responsibility and that there is a time to take action there is a time for war calling the police in is like calling in the army so there are legitimate times in which wars arise in which defensive actions must be taken yeah at different points and that kind of leads us to well, well what what really are the factors that cause wars is religion one of those factors what factors do cause wars well, yes, war can be caused for so many reasons, and is caused for so many reasons, isn't it? We, we have people going to war for defence. That's one of the reasons that it's easy to understand and to have, in a sense, acceptance. But a lot of wars have been fought over land, over resources. You know, you have the oil and you're not giving it to us, and you have the water rights and you're not letting the water flow down to us. And a lot of them have had to be the spread of empire and power that uh, people have, that uh, we have a responsibility to grow our nation. Uh, some of it's got to do with the personal aggrandizement of the, of the emperor or the king or whatever it might be. Uh, some of them are ideological wars like Marxism. Marxism has created the deaths of millions of people in warfare as it spread its uh, particular view of the world and the future Sometimes it's racism. Sometimes it's, well, it's tribalism. I remember seeing a tribal, well, it's not tribe's not the right word for Papua New Guinea, but I was up in Papua New Guinea. I saw two villagers shooting arrows at each other, throwing spears at each other, and it just had to do with an inter-village war, fight. It was a 
like a Saturday afternoon activity. Sometimes it's vendettas. You, know, you, you did this to us, we will do that to you. And there are some island fights up in the Torres Strait Islands that went for years just in vendettas with payback that takes place. There's hundreds of reasons why wars take place. And sometimes in any one war, it can be a, a combination of these different reasons that have happened. We're, we're arguing over where the boundary line is between your people and my people, but last week you killed one of our sons trying to get the, your side of the boundary line, so we're now fighting because you killed our son. And there's a whole host of ethnic, racial, tribal reasons that take place, and sometimes violence becomes so much a part of life that you've even forgotten why you were fighting. You just are. So where does religion fit into that, to, into this multifactorial situation where wars are caused by all kinds of things? People are religious. Where does religion fit into that and the causes of war? Well, in one sense, if people are religious, then religious people will go to war because people go to war and people are religious, therefore religion carries it along. And sometimes it even can be used as the justification for war. Some wars are because... This religious group doesn't like that religious group. But just as war is so complicated, religion gets muddled into war because religion is muddled into life. But I think before you can work out how religion causes war or doesn't or where it does, where it, you actually have to come back to the issue of what is religion. Okay, what is religion? Well, it's a nonsense in some ways. It's a nonsense category that has been created by... People in the last few hundred years in particular where empires came in contact with other nations, other peoples, other groups of people, religion has the great difficulty that you can't define it. To have a definition of religion, you've got to actually have something to which every example of it fits and no other example will fit into this thing. Well, what is it? Most Buddhists, many Buddhists, don't believe in gods. You can't have God as a necessary for religion unless you're going to remove Buddhism from the category. With Judaism, it's not what you believe, it's who you are. Um, with, with Hinduism, it's like that too. But Hindus do believe all kinds of things. But it's not the diversity of their thoughts that make them Hindus, it's the fact that they're Indians. For a Hindu to be an Indian, to be an Indian is to be Hindu... It's just that side of their life which is not, well, is not what? To have a category called religion that is going to take in the diversities of human life and behaviour in, in a meaningful way is basically impossible. There's no definition of religion that works there's no, because there's no category that includes everything and excludes everything the, of the thing you're talking about. And so it just becomes a rude word used by people who do not like other people's Christianity or spirituality or Islamic belief or whatever it is. It's, it's a term of abuse. It's like the present governments. They're talking about faith communities as a way of talking about religion. But faith communities doesn't work either because... 
Hinduism is not a matter of faith. Christianity is a matter of faith. Are you going to say Hinduism is not religious, whereas Christianity is religious? Because they said, no, no, it's all a community of faith. And all religions believe in peace. Well, no, not all religions do believe in peace. <laughs> this, it's a nonsense of the secularist mind trying to grapple with this non-secular uh, view of the world. Is that almost a definition? Someone who's non-secular, someone who thinks there's something other than the Enlightenment liberal humanist kind of dream that we can figure <laughs> everything out on our own? It can be, but no, because we Christians are very secular because we believe in the created world and the created world order. In this age. In this which age. Is, which is what yes. secular means. In fact, the Roman, the Roman Catholics always abuse me in this because they've got to, this is something they're right. They talk about secular priests and monastic priests. And the secular priest is the one out in the world. <laughs> and so how you could, for many people, use the word secular. What they really mean is secularist. What they really mean is materialists, anti-spiritual materialists, because Christians are materialists. We believe in the material world. See, even that doesn't work. It's, it's a, a word desperately looking for a meaning. So we've got a difficult word that's hard to describe, being described as the cause of a complex phenomenon that has many factors that lead to it, that is war. Yes. Doesn't sound like a very coherent accusation. No, it's not. Now, they'd be much better if they said Christianity causes wars. Well, then you could answer that. But saying religious causes wars, well, I've got to defend Islamic wars or Islamic coercion over people as being somehow... Or Israel's war, I mean, the Six-Day War back in the 1960s was fought from the state of Israel. It was Jews defending their state. Was that a religious war? Well, all the people they were fighting weren't Jews. <laughs> but no, it wasn't a religious war. It was a political war. It was a, it was a state war. It was a protection of their state of Israel. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's... Religion is not the issue, even though at one level you can look and say, well, if all those Jews would give up being Jewish, then they could get rid of the state of Israel. But then Jews can't give up being Jewish, you know, especially after the Holocaust. There's no way a Jew can give up being Jewish. Uh, Hitler wouldn't let them. I mean, it's, it's, it all becomes a silly argument at this point. But speak on one group, Christianity... That's as good as anyone. I mean, that's the one that most of the people in newspapers is really are really meaning. Christianity causes wars. That's a different question. So, thinking then about how we might respond when someone raises this kind of objection, or it comes up yet again in conversation uh, or in interaction with people, should this be one of our first opening gambits when they say, "Oh, religion, of course, it causes wars." We all know that. Say, well, what do you mean? Do you mean Christianity causes war? Yes, that's where we go. And But I'd use some of the others, you know. You meaning Judaism causes wars? Or you meaning Hinduism causes war? Or Buddhism causes war? What, what do you mean? Or Marxism? Do you mean Marxism causes war? What, what particular kind of thing do you think causes wars? But it's only the opening gambit, as you say. Well, where would you take it from there? Well, I'd say I can only talk about Christianity. And does Christianity cause wars? And your answer would be? Well, you've got to admit at certain times, Christians 
have actively been at war and their motivation for that war has been in part affected by their allegiance to Christianity or their allegiance to their type of Christianity. Well, that's because Christians are still sinful. Christians make mistakes. But Christianity as Christianity does not cause wars because our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ said, my kingdom is not of this world and we do not advance Christianity by warfare. We advance Christianity by the proclamation of the gospel, by prayer, but we do not by the sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword, said Jesus to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now there's an argument, probably a good argument I suspect, that there are other groups such as Islam for which that's much more of a live question, that war has been the, the means by which Islam has advanced its its progress at different points, and it is tied up with the nature of Islam, with the Quran, with the Hadiths, with the way that Islam configures church and state. It does it differently from us. It, yes, this is why putting them all in the same category is Doesn't just make a sense. nonsense. Yeah. Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem on a donkey, not even a full-size one, a, a little donkey, as a man coming in peace who would within a week be crucified. Whereas Muhammad entered into Mecca at the front of an army of 10,000 soldiers. Now, Mecca conceded and the war didn't take place, but the two men could not be more different on the subject of, of warfare as the way of bringing in their particular view of the future of the kingdom. And is this the kind of road by which you'd start to talk about the gospel as you answer the question? Because our aim in any apologetic interaction, people ask our questions. Our aim is not only in one sense to ask hard questions back, but to ask those questions in light of the gospel and who Jesus is. Yes, that's part of it. And to get to Jesus, and it's fairly easy on the Jesus on the warfare. You see, he, he didn't come as a soldier. He didn't carry war. Nor did he teach us to do that. Nor did his apostles do that. He was the crucified. And they were the persecuted. And that is the position of the Christian. Our fight, our weapons, is to take every thought captive in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That's our weaponry. But there is no encouragement in the New Testament and every discouragement in the New Testament to think that the, the kingdom of God will ever be advanced by warfare, by spiritual, physical warfare. I mean, we fight the good fight, but it's the good fight of faith. Right? We fight against the powers and principalities by the word of God and prayer in Ephesians chapter 6. <laughs> we don't fight against the Roman enemy. No, what Paul, what, Paul, what Peter write is, we're to obey the emperor. So in answering someone in this way, we can clarify by talking about Christianity and not religion in general, we can answer the objection or use the, the topic that's been raised in conversation to talk about the gospel, to talk about what Christianity really is. And that's always a great thing in our answering of people, in our conversation with people. But there's also an opportunity to ask hard questions in return. And that's always also part of apologetics and a part of interacting, is to unsettle and get under the skin of the person we're talking to. And how does that work in this 
Well, there's several ways. One is to say to them, well, Marxism has killed millions. What makes that right or wrong? See, when Christians have done the wrong thing, we know it's wrong and we can point out to the fact that it was wrong and it was inconsistent with the gospel and we can repent of doing that. There have been times Christians have done the wrong thing. That, that's true. We can point to it and say that it was wrong and yes. say that it was inconsistent and that it never should have happened and that we never want to do it again. And choose not to do it in the future. That's exactly. right. But Marxism, you can't do that because there is actually nothing wrong with Marxists killing millions. Not within Marxism. The, the greater good is something for which you will do it. The cost has to be paid. The cost has to be paid. The revolution, you've got to remove and demolish what's there already. And revolutionary armies, Marxist armies or French revolutions, it's the same thing. There is no limit and there is no calling back to, to be able to show this was wrong. Whereas Christianity can. Islam also has the problem of of being able to say that this was wrong. Well, there are certain elements of Islamic warfare where there are limits, but the idea that you will not kill an apostate, why wouldn't you? The, the Quran, the Hadiths teach it that you should. It seems like yet another example in which the criticism of Christianity is very Christian. That the, <laughs> uh, that the standard that's being applied... The assumption behind the question and the accusation is that war is necessarily, of course, a terrible thing. We believe in peace, not war. And so anything that causes war must be terrible. But where does that idea come from? Does yeah. it come from Marxism or from <laughs> Islam? That's right. It comes from Christianity. I mean, that's where that Tom Holland's book, Dominion, is making the point. And he, of course, is an atheist, but he can see that his value system like that actually comes out of Christianity. And the Christian values have actually affected some of the empires, some of the nations, some of the warfares. So, again, this is why it's a, a, such a complex issue. See, when a nation, when an empire got rid of cannibalism, suppressed the culture and belief system that gave rise to cannibalism or rise to uh, the killing of widows or giving rise to the sacrifice of, of children to each day that was a good thing that was a right thing to get rid of those things it's sad that it was got rid of by oppression it would have been better to get rid of by preaching the gospel and seeing hearts change so that people didn't do that the two things went hand in hand as missionaries went and preached this gospel to change people Empires came and enforced some of those changes. It was a cultural destruction, and if you think all cultures are sacred, then it was a bad thing to do. But if you said to me, it's all right to sacrifice little children every morning to bring the sun up, it's all right to kill widows just because we've got no social welfare system to look after them, it's all right to kill people and eat people, I'm saying, no, it's not. And you don't believe it's right either. And so what would you do if you had arrived 200, 300 years ago and found people doing these things? How would you have stopped it? To what end would you go to bring about an end to these kind of dreadful things? See, governments have to do hard things. Sometimes go to war, use coercion. 
And when those governments are informed by Christian values, well, it's better <laughs> that they are. You see, there was a warfare done with a certain degree of pacifism by Martin Luther King. The change that came about that the government actually imposed upon the American peoples because of the civil rights movement. Never forget, the civil rights movement was found in the black churches. That was the home of the civil rights movement. It was a religious movement that was calling upon the nation to do the right thing. But the nation actually had to do it. They had to pass the laws. They had to impose the laws. Was that Christians at war? Funny kind of warfare because Martin Luther King flatly refused to take up arms and was put in prison. Which is a Christian kind of warfare. Yes. That takes every thought captive and, and ultimately brings some real change in life and sometimes in society as a whole. Yes. But it's a warfare conducted with different weapons. And he was an extremist. Because one of the other ways in which people try and deal with this issue is to say, oh, well, we're just against religious f extremists. And you think, well... So you're against Martin Luther King? You're against Martin Luther King. <laughs> it's not extremism that matters, it's justice and truth that matter. And that kind of seems like a good point at which to round off our conversation because we're, we're saying that the way to respond to these kind of accusations that come about Christianity causing wars or religion causing wars is to go back to the truth, to go back to the justice of God in Jesus, uh, and to show that not only is the accusation itself a kind of muddled, incoherent slogan, not a genuine argument, but that actually points to what Jesus has done and said, what kind of teaching he brought and what kind of preaching he brought, and, but also what effect it's had on our whole society. That the very asking of such a question, the very desire for something like human rights and civil rights and peace and justice, stem from our our belief as Westerners in the value of peace and truth and justice, which is a distinctively Western set of values. The United Nations Declaration of Human Rights was written with the Bible in mind. Charles Malik, who was the uh, one of the most important people constructing it, was a very keen Christian man from Lebanon, and he saw it as that. And interestingly, a whole range of Muslim countries have not to this day signed that declaration. Because it embodies certain things that really are profoundly Christian. Yes, that's right. Well, thanks again, Philip, for raising such an interesting point. When you said to me that this morning that you wanted to talk about religious wars, I thought, well, that sounds like an interesting topic. That's because you went on holidays with me reading my book. <laughs> but it has been a fascinating discussion. Thanks for it and for the way it equips us to to preach the gospel, to interact with our world and with the people we, we talk with. And thanks once again for being here on Two Ways News and for uh, listening and for interacting as you've been doing. Do keep sending in your questions and feedback. We love to hear them. You can go across to the website uh, and find the email there and just respond uh, if you sign up to the email newsletter and receive Two Ways News that way. Or you can just send me an email at tonyjpain.me.com. It'll get through to us that way and we'll respond. But I think all that remains for us then really is to finish as we always do, which is by praying. And I think it's your turn this week. Would you like to close it in is, prayer? But I've noticed that your website, your, your address is me.com. It's fairly individualistic. I mean, I think our friend Carl would say that that is postmodern. That's very postmodern of me. 
I exist at me.com. Yes. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that you are the God who gives life to all of us. We thank you, Father, for looking after this world and for your great plan when in the Lord Jesus Christ all the weapons will be turned our way. They will all be destroyed and war will no longer be. And we pray, Father, for those who are caught up in the terrible wars of the moment, that you would bring resolution and peace, that you would give to governments wisdom. And we pray, Father, for those who are faithful to you, that they may give testimony to you in the face of terrible conflict and difficulties and and horrors that are round about them, that they may be able to continue to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ and show another way of life. And we do pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom to be able to answer those who challenge the history of Christianity and ourselves, that we might be able to point to the real truth of Christianity, not in our history, but in our Lord and Saviour. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen.